Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. How about another round of applause for Darlene with those very inspirational announcements and she spoke prophetically over this message and said it was going to be powerful. Uh, So let's hope that that's the case. Once again, good morning and welcome to Community Christian Church. It's so good to have you with us. Uh, Something very significant and special happens every February 2nd. Can anybody tell me what that is? That's right. It's our anniversary, our church anniversary. We held our very first service 31 years ago on February the 2nd, 1992. Something else happens on February 2nd. It's Groundhog Day. And every February 2nd, for the last 137 years, since 1886, this little guy right here has been making predictions about the future. And if you haven't had a chance to meet him yet, let me introduce you to Punxsutawney Phil. Can I get you to say that? Punxsutawney Phil. And you know how this works. On February 2nd, uh, when little Phil climbs out of the front door of his burrow, and if he sees his shadow, what? Six more weeks to winter. But if he doesn't see a shadow, that means we're going to have an early spring. Well, in the last 137 years, our furry friend has seen his shadow 105 times. 105 times in 137 years. And according to Stormfacts Almanac, Prophet Phil's accuracy is at 39%. (laughs) That's it. A meager 39%. I mean, come on, he has a 50-50 chance of getting it right, and he's been wrong more than 60% of the time. If you ask me, that's not very good. In fact, it's shameful. (laughs) You see, it's one thing to try to predict the end of winter, it's altogether different to predict, predict the end of the world. And during the centuries, many people have tried doing just that. In fact, in my lifetime alone, a whole slew of dates have been thrown out. Pastor Chuck Smith, the guy who was intricately involved in the Jesus Revolution of the 60s and 70s, maybe you've seen the movie, he predicted Jesus would return in 1981. A few years later, Hal Lindsey said, no, Chuck got it wrong, it's going to be in 1988. And in 1988, good friends of mine bought into that prediction, and they were convinced it was rapture time. When that date came and went, other big-name preachers, they started to zero in on the year 2000. And they predicted that Y2K, remember that little tag? that that was going to trigger a computer crash that the Antichrist would exploit to take over the world. A lot of fear taking place in December of 1999, if you remember. 
Well, then Pat Robertson said Jesus was coming back in 2007. The Maya said, no, it's closer to 2012. John Hagee said the 2014 blood moon would signal the end of time. And then world events expert David Mead predicted the rapture of the church would take place exactly on April the 23rd, 2018. Pastor Kenton Bishore said Mead was wrong and gave the date of 2021. And we're still here. I hate to say it, but with 0% accuracy, all of these predictions are worse than the groundhog. <laughs> Every single end of day's forecast has been wrong. Because apparently, when Jesus said no one, no man, no woman, no prophet, no pastor, knows the day or the hour, what he really meant to some people was nobody but me. Now, why would reputable people, pastors and ministers, who know the scripture, they know what the word of God has to say, people who have established themselves as faithful leaders, why would they get out there on a thin limb and make a second coming of Jesus prediction? Why? Because this is the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live like Jesus is coming back anytime. That it could be any day. Maybe even today, after lunch. <laughs> this should be the mindset and our life purpose. It's what we should be thinking about all the time. It should be on our minds. And yes, the scripture says we are to occupy till he comes back, which means to go about our daily lives, but a part of that occupation means to be watchful and ready, to be thinking about this, to have it on our hearts every day. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus said, who said it? Jesus said, so you also... So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. One translation says when you least expect him. Or when you are compelled to think no way in the world is Jesus coming back anytime soon. And so here's the million dollar question for this morning. Are we living in the last days? I mean, is it possible that right now, May 2023, we're witnessing signs of the end times and the imminent and approaching return of Jesus is right around the corner. And before I go any further, I want to say emphatically, yes. The answer to that question is yes, we are living in the last days. That's my opinion. And before you react to that statement, please understand that from a biblical standpoint, the term last days, it means the last period of time. The last or the end or the final time period. And one Bible scholar put it this way. He said, the last days incorporate the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And that's a long time. 
from his first coming to his second coming. So are we living in that time period? Yes, we are. In fact, over 2,000 years ago, Paul the Apostle and many of the other New Testament writers, they talked about the last days. It was Simon Peter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, who stood up on the day of Pentecost. And he said, what you're witnessing today, 2,000 years ago, what you're witnessing today is the fulfillment of the prophetic word that Joel gave, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people. And so the apostle Peter, the apostle Paul, and many others, they referenced the time immediately following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the last days. But that's not the main issue here this morning, is it? I suppose what you really want to hear from me is whether or not I think Jesus is going to return in our lifetime. I mean, if we're going to talk about a second coming, do I think he's coming back while we're alive? And in reality, what you're asking me to do is make a second coming of Jesus prediction. <laughs> something I'm not supposed to do. And so let me say without hesitation or reservation, I don't know. I'm not sure. Is it possible? Absolutely. If you ask me, everything's in place. And the stage is set for the dramatic return of Jesus in all of his glory. It could happen. Now, the last time that we talked about this same subject was a number of months ago with the end of day series. I had a man approach me during that series. He just started attending the church, and he wanted to know, he, he was hearing this whole idea of the second coming of Jesus for the very first time. He wanted to know, was this something that I had as my own opinion, or was it in the Word of God? Pretty good question. I told him it was in the Word of God. It wasn't a story or a theory made up by preachers. Uh, the second coming of Jesus wasn't simply an acceptable tradition that was passed down through the ages. It was wrapped up in the scripture and that it has biblical backing. There are many places in the word of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that talk about the second coming of Jesus. Let me just give you one passage. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Here's what it says. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They, the disciples, were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky with the deer in the headlights look? What are you doing? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. The same Jesus will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Could the return of Jesus be any clearer? The angels spelled it out perfectly. And they said to the disciples, Maranatha, our Lord come. In other words, make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. And that angelic testimony is what fueled the disciples' passion for the gospel. It's what caused the apostles and the disciples and the converts in the church to live every single day like it was their last day. 
They believed with all their hearts that at any moment Jesus was going to return. And I am not going to take that away from you. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, well, I don't know. Uh, after all the predictions and all the years and all the dead ends, it's highly unlikely and improbable that Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime. I refuse to take that hope and anticipation away from you. And I want to communicate to you that it's very possible. That's my approach. That's my understanding. That's what I firmly believe. Now, what I'd like to do for a few moments this morning is take a look at an account in the scripture that foreshadows the second coming of Jesus. It's recorded in all three synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but the passage that I want to take a look at this morning is found in Mark's account. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. Are you still with me? That's some of you. Six days later, six days after Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, he told them that for the very first time, the scripture tells us that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. His clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He, Peter, said this because he didn't really know what else to say. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this would be God, this is my dearly beloved son, listen to him. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. Who did they see with them? Not just Jesus, but only Jesus. Only Jesus. All right, this passage that we just read, recorded three times in the scripture, is often referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration or the Transfiguration of Jesus. This is precisely how Jesus is going to look, the description that we have here, when we see him the next time. See, the first time around in the Gospels, we see human Jesus. But the second coming of Jesus is going to reveal him in all of his glory, just like the disciples saw him. Now, this particular mountaintop experience, the, uh, the experience that Jesus didn't bring all of his disciples to, just the three, Peter, James, and John, this was something that they took with them to their graves. They never forgot this moment. How could they? They were never able to free themselves from what they saw on the mountain that day. And I know that because of what Peter writes in his epistles. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter said, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming. Peter said, we didn't just make that up. Somebody didn't hand that to us. 
We saw it. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. It was something we witnessed. And we saw that when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. And we heard the voice from heaven. The majestic voice of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So here in 2 Peter, Peter wrote about the transfiguration. And he links it to the second coming of Jesus. In his heart, he knew that that's how Jesus was going to come upon the earth. And rightly so, because that's precisely the way that the book of Revelation describes Jesus when talking about the end times. They're identical. And in that glorified setting, remember, we read it just a few moments ago, Peter was the only one with the nerve or the stupidity to open his mouth. Remember, when he saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah, he made a recommendation, one that God didn't appreciate very much. In fact, God immediately responded to it with a rebuke. And it wasn't the first time that Peter stuck his foot in his mouth. Now, I love the scripture because it kind of defends Peter. The scripture says, it gives us a little detail and says, well, you know, he said that because he really didn't know what else to say. Well, typically in that situation, wisdom would dictate, don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut. But not Peter. Peter saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and what did he say? Let's set up shop for all three guys. Let's build them individual memorials and individual tabernacles. Let's give them equal space and equal time. Let's make them all the same. And the father said, I don't think so. And friends, don't look now, but with regard to the second coming of Jesus, I believe the church's response has been very similar to the response that Peter had. Because like Peter, the church today desires to build three tabernacles or three different distinctions. One for Moses, who represents the law. One for Elijah, who represents prophecy. And then one for Jesus, who is our salvation. However, the voice of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is speaking to the church today, and that message is, this is my son. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Keep your eyes and your focus on him. You see, in the church today, there's a big push to pound the repentance message. Over and over again, I hear a, a, a group of people talking about how important it is for us to repent of our sins. They talk a lot about judgment and the coming wrath. In fact, they remind us that God is going to pour out his wrath. And they love to use some of those verses of scripture that we read in the book of Revelation. And they say, unless we repent of our sins, and unless we clean up our act and walk according to the commandments of God, no way in the world are we ever going to experience a revival in the land. All we're ever going to see is judgment coming from God. 
And all kinds of bad things are going to happen. And every time something bad happens, it's because of how sinful we are. Now, the last time I was in Detroit, in Greektown, I saw a man dragging a cross down Monroe Avenue. And he was a street preacher. And he was talking about the second coming of Jesus. And he kept saying, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. He said, Jesus is coming back. You are going to hell if you don't repent. Now, I give that guy a lot of credit. You know how, how, how much courage it takes to do something like that? And if God told him to do it, I'm not going to second guess his ministry. But from my perspective, it, it wasn't really that effective. People weren't paying attention to him. I, I just couldn't see the value in that approach. And please don't misunderstand me. Don't misquote me. Repentance is extremely important. Our whole salvation is based on our willingness to humble ourselves and to surrender our lives to God. We have to be willing to repent of our sins, to turn from our sins and to draw from the grace that God gives to us. However, over-attention on sin and beating the re repentance drum until it becomes a deafening sound that's like building a tabernacle to Moses. And as important as it is, God says Moses doesn't get a tent. Listen to the message, understand the value of it, but no memorial or tent for Moses. And yes, Moses was the lawgiver. He established the law. And in the days of Jesus' ministry, uh, it was the Pharisees and the religious leaders who threw the book at people who refused to keep the law. And they were harsh. They were so devoted to that message. And do you remember what Jesus said to the, about the Pharisees? They were hypocrites. And he appealed to us, the church, that our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Today's not a day, friends, to throw stones and pass judgment. It's not a day to focus in on all of the darkness around us. Sinners in Jesus' day, they needed mercy. They needed grace and compassion. Can I tell you, nothing has changed. There is a lot of brokenness in our world today. They need the same message that Jesus gave to them. God said, this is my son. Listen to him. Is it a time to stand up for the faith? Is it a time to fight for what we believe? Absolutely, but we gotta go about it a little bit differently than the Pharisees did. Now, in addition to those who we find in the Moses camp, the law-keeping camp, there are many in the church today who are fixated on Elijah or on the prophetic. And by that I mean over-attention and maybe even a little obsession with knowing the future and receiving a special revelation that no one else has. With regard to revival and the second coming of Jesus, there are many, many people today who hang on the latest prophetic words spoken by those who claim to hear from God every day or every other day. And if you don't believe me, just do a Google search or a YouTube search, type in prophetic word and watch what happens. Millions of hits. 
prophetic word after prophetic word after prophetic word from A to Z and everything in between. Every kind of message you could possibly think of. And I have to tell you, in recent days, some of our modern day prophets, the people that we respect as prophets today, they have been a little inaccurate with their predictions. Uh, to put it plainly, they've been wrong. And yet we are willing to excuse and overlook their error and gear up for the next big prophecy. And again, don't misquote me. Don't misunderstand me. I am in no way minimizing or belittling the prophetic gift. It's one of the nine gifts of the Spirit. We need prophecy. We need discernment. And you can trace fulfilled prophecy all through the Scripture. It's important. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I told the story about the two disciples. One was Cleopas. We don't know the other guy's name. They were leaving Jerusalem on Easter Sunday because they were so discouraged. They were in great despair. They just watched Jesus die on Good Friday. He was buried. Now the tomb's empty. They don't know what's going on. They leave Jerusalem, and they, on their, they're on their way to Emmaus. The Bible says that Jesus joins their little group, and he engages them in conversation. Here's what the Bible says about that conversation. Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, who? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, like Elijah, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. If there was ever a time that I wanted to be a little fly on the wall or in the area, it would have been at that time. Can you imagine what a powerful and insightful conversation that must have been? As Jesus began to expound and Tell them all about the fulfilled prophecies. All the things that we, we study and we'd love to know. He made it very clear to them that those prophecies pointed to him. In fact, Luke said he went through all the prophecies. And they were all concerning him. All the prophecies centered on him. So prophecy is important. Prophecy is essential. It's one of the nine gifts of the Spirit but it doesn't get a tent. It doesn't get to be in the same category or class as Jesus. Elijah is not the draw. Jesus is. And once again, God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Watch the way that he responded to situations and how he handled the different problems and issues that he faced during his lifetime. In fact, let Jesus become your magnificent obsession, nothing else. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, set your affections on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. One more time, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. That word set in the Greek, it means to seek, pursue, chase, and even hound heavenly matters. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When you do in life, when you're thinking about the future, when some issues come up that, that, that bring some confusion and maybe some doubt into your mind, is that the picture that you see? 
Is that what you view and focus in on? Jesus sitting on the throne in control of all things? We are encouraged. The, the, the gospel writers they, and the, the epistle writers, the, the scripture writers, they, uh, they appeal to us to set our hearts, our affections, our minds on him, on Jesus. Last month, Pastor Teresa and I, we had another occasion to visit Sioux Falls and participate in Grandparents Week. Uh, so we went there, and on Monday, uh, we spent some time in Adriana's classroom, a couple of hours there listening to her teachers. And then on Tuesday, uh, we went to Gio's classroom and did the very same thing. And on Monday and Tuesday, before we spent those few hours in their classroom, we were invited to a general assembly where hundreds and hundreds of grandparents came together and we listened to the principals and the teachers and the staff members, the faculty, and the superintendent talking about the school. Audrey and Gio, they go to Sioux Falls Christian School. And for those few hours on Monday and Tuesday, we heard teacher after teacher and principal after superintendent talking about Jesus. They brought Jesus into the classroom. They brought Jesus into all of their activities. They brought Jesus into everything that they do. Not just the 15 minutes of, of chapel time where we sang a song or two of worship and then may, listen to a verse of scripture. The whole day for those students is built around the gospel. And Jesus is brought into every classroom, every subject, everything that they do. And please don't, don't misunderstand me. They work hard in that school. Those subjects are tough and they take home plenty of homework. And they're encouraged to excel and to work hard and to get good grades and to compete in sports. Their sports teams are really well and they, they, they do really well in the area. They prepare them for college. But the overriding objective of everything they do, every hour of every day, is to point those students to Jesus. And they're teaching them. That's right. To set their affections on the Lord. To live for him. To let his light shine through their lives. Yes, they want them to get careers. And they want them to do well in all of life. They teach that. They, 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 they communicate those things, how important they are. But it's all for his glory. They teach those students every single day the seven most powerful words that you're going to find when it comes to the gospel and the second coming of Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Let's bow our heads and prepare for communion. Jesus, we believe that you're coming back. With all of our hearts, this is not just a part of our doctrine, Lord. This is a part of who we are. And Lord, we want to be ready. We want to prepare our hearts. We want to set our affections on you. We don't want the darkness in this world 
to remove the passion that we have to live for you. And I pray, Lord, that once again, you would put within our own thought system, our own way that we act and way that we behave, this idea, Maranatha, you're coming back. And Lord, we're living today like it could happen today. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to hearts as only you can. You know where each one of us is at. You know what we need. We thank you, Lord, for our communion time. We've been singing about it. We've been worshiping you. We've been calling upon the name, been speaking the name of Jesus over every person and every family. And Lord, we ask that you would bless and anoint this communion time. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The scripture says it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper ended, Jesus took the cup. Again, he gave thanks. He passed the cup to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, every time you gather around the communion table, you hold the emblems in your hand. He said, I want you to do it in remembrance of my death. You proclaim, you announce the death of Jesus until he comes back. With the communion service, Jesus wanted us to recall and remember his sacrifice on the cross. He wanted us to remember his death and not to lose sight of what he was willing to do for us. But he was also reminding us that his death speaks of life, resurrection life and power, his victory over sin, and the promise of his second coming. So every time we receive communion, we don't just have to think about Good Friday. That's something we should, but there's a lot more to it than that. We think about the victory that he's brought into our lives. We think about his promises and his blessing. The victory that we have in his name and the promise of his coming, our blessed hope. Jesus talked a little bit about his coming. He told some parables when you get toward the end chapters in the Gospels, he had a lot to say about his coming. And one of the parables that Jesus talked about was called the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten maidens. And very simply, Jesus said there were ten young maidens. Five of them, he said, were foolish. Five of them were wise. You think about that. When you read the story and you, you, you try to get in the, in the meat of it and understand what Jesus was talking about, you find the only distinguishing factor between the five foolish gals and the five brilliant ones is the five wise maidens brought a little extra oil with them. That's it. They all had oil. They all had lamps. Lamps were burning. They were waiting for the return of the bridegroom. They all were ready. They were all prepared. But the five smart girls, they brought a little extra oil. 
It's the only difference between the, ten, between the other five. So when the bridegroom delayed his coming and he didn't show up when they thought he would, the five foolish gals, their lamps dimmed and then went out. But the others, they took a little bit of oil from their reserve and they kept their lamp burning all the way to the end. That's what I want more than anything else. To follow the example of the brilliant girls, the smart ones, the ones who recognize that they didn't have enough within themselves to do everything that had to be done in life. They brought a little reserve oil. They brought some additional things. No matter how long Jesus delays in his coming, I want my passion for the gospel to burn brightly. I want to set my affections upon heavenly matters regardless of how dark it comes. I don't want darkness to define my faith. I don't want the ugliness in our world, the hate, the sin, the immorality, all the craziness, things that have never happened before. It's the same evil. Evil hasn't changed. I don't want that to define me. I want to have enough light, enough oil to make it all the way to the end. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your promise that you are with us, Lord. You're always with us. You never leave us or forsake us. We have work to do as a church. You've given us an assignment. Our great commission is to go into all the world and make disciples. You didn't call us, Lord God, to pass judgment on sinners. You didn't call us to be all concerned about what's going to happen in the future. You called us to fix our eyes on Jesus and listen to him. And I pray that, Lord, for every person in this place, that we could see you as you really are, that we could know you as King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who died on the cross, that we might have life and live it to the full. Minister, Lord, in these closing moments, we pray. Amen. Let's receive the bread and the cup together. 